Good evening. It's a pleasure to welcome you here to this Monday night class at Spirit Rock Center. If we have not met before, my name is Jack Cornfield, and this Monday night sitting group has been ongoing now for 23 years. Um, and Spirit Rock has grown in this beautiful valley here through the collective efforts of a whole community of people dedicated to the twin principles of compassion and wakefulness or inner freedom of heart that are central to the teachings of the Buddha but that are really part of all wise spiritual life. And so whatever brings you this evening, it's a pleasure to welcome you here. It's springtime, it's, it's great to come and just be on this land. Um, Monday night serves as a kind of an introduction to the practices of mindfulness and loving kindness, compassion, and so forth that we have at the center of the trainings at Spirit Rock. Um, and we have all kinds of retreats and classes and uh, extend those trainings both through um, inner practice and ways to bring them into our life. We have a meditation and spiritual family practices as a, uh, as a spiritual um, practice. We have um, various ways of bringing out the spirit of compassion and wakefulness into the world around us. But the first task of a meditation center is really to help us find ways to quiet the mind, open the heart, and get in touch with our own deepest wisdom. Um, So what we do on Monday nights is really simple. Um, We sit together for about 35 minutes or so in silence with a little bit of instruction just as a reminder. Then take a break. 10-15 minutes to stretch or relax and then that's usually followed by a talk and on occasion by discussion or questions and answers. Um, Monday night also serves in addition to the newer people who come here also serves as a sitting group for a whole group of friends that come more regularly over the years just as a way to sit in silence together um, and allow ourselves in that stillness and in the company of one another um, to get in touch with the values and understandings that come through our deep inner attention and use that in the days or the week ahead. So it's a pleasure to sit with those of you I know well and quite happy to meet those of you who've come for the first time. Let's then begin with a sitting meditation. Let yourself come back in and find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease.
flash. I don't know. Karen is our communications director at Spirit Rock. She's trying to communicate something. Yeah, you won't put my picture in. I didn't get my makeup right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (sighs) Okay. So again, please let yourself sit in a way which is comfortable and at ease. And... uh, Listen in a meditative way, which means fundamentally don't believe anything that you hear. (laughs) Um, Really, let it come and go. And if there's something that is uh, of value or resonates with what you already know in yourself to be true in in the depths of your own understanding, then let it be a useful reminder. But there's no exams and grades and things like that. There's really the... The taking time to listen and, and measuring by our own deepest, uh, our own deepest wisdom. So this evening, I'd, I'd like to talk a bit um, about one aspect of what, in the Buddhist tradition, is called wise understanding, and it is um, the first step in the path of practice, in the eightfold path, when one studies it traditional Buddhist practice. Um, It's said that it's helpful to reflect on what understandings we might bring to our human life and our human experience um, that will diminish suffering and bring well-being. And part of what makes me want to speak about it tonight is, um, I have to do the proud father thing for a moment, bear with me, is that um, a few days ago I went to my daughter's graduation at Berkeley. Um, and uh, it was terrific. It was Berkeley so big that they do their graduation by department. So she was a, in the political science department and, and it filled the Greek theater. And there were probably four or 500 graduates in the department and then all their people were there. Um, <clears throat> And it was so beautiful to see, to, to me I felt it was a kind of a, um, an inspiration um, for the future to see these hundreds uh, of students <clears throat> all dressed up and smiling and all their parents feeling very proud and pleased and, and so forth. And to somehow see in it um, the, the accomplishment and the um, uh, brightness and the enthusiasm um, and the potential that was there. Um, and there was a kind of a um, spirit, I think, that as there is in, in graduations. Part of it, of course, is relief. Like my daughter said, no more papers, no more lectures, all of that. Um, there was a celebratory nature to it. And you could really feel this whole generation, in this particular ceremony anyway, of young people who were ready to go out and do something with their lives in the world, um, and I found it tremendously encouraging. I also found it, um, I found it quite touching to see how extraordinarily diverse the population of students was. There was almost every 
part of the world and every major language and every major culture somehow represented. You know, there was um, Jalan Kurdistani from Kurdistan, right? And then there was um, Viktor Alexandrovich or whatever, and then there was somebody from Korea, at least as an immigrant, All, mostly children of first, second, third great generation immigrants in different ways as American society is, um, and a few Native Americans as well. But in it, you could somehow feel the um, coming together uh, in our community in the Bay Area um, of a society that is um, so mixed and diverse um, that I, again, took a great heart from that. Um, Maybe diverse isn't the right word. It was inclusive. It felt like there was a quality of inclusivity of human beings. Um, And the quality of inclusivity and the respect that was there um, is part of the right understanding that the Buddha uh, taught and offered um, as a way of living in a wise fashion in the world. In one of the most famous of the Buddhist texts, um, in the last year of the Buddha's life, um, a man, a minister from a local king, um, is sent to visit the Buddha and to talk about um, conflict with the neighboring kingdom and whether they should go to war or not. And the Buddha asks, well, tell me about this neighboring kingdom. Do these people meet and gather in harmony? Um, Do they uh, respect one another? Do they respect the traditions that have been handed down that have been a benefit over many generations? Do they revere their elders? Do they care for the uh, children and the weak and the poor in their population? Um, Do they uh, respect the natural environment and the trees and the, the, you know, the... the, um, environment around the country where they live. And and each time this particular minister would answer the Buddha and say they do. And he said, well, then this nation can be expected to prosper or this kingdom can be expected to prosper and not decline. Um, And then he said, he turned to all his followers and he said, in the same way, if you too treat one another with respect, if you meet in harmony and break up in harmony, if you listen to one another, if you care for those who are um, the weak or the vulnerable among you, if you respect the natural environment, if you develop your own personal mindfulness and loving kindness and then extend it to those that you meet, so then will the, the teachings of the Dharma or the teachings within this community of practitioners also Um, be expected to prosper and not decline. And so here is the teachings, 2,500 years old, uh, talking about what makes a wise life and a wise community based primarily on respect, inclusivity, and loving kindness. And when you enter a temple, if you enter a Buddhist temple in Asia, Um, like the forest monasteries where I live, there's a feeling of respect for life 
that's quite palpable. Um, people step over the ants, you know, so, and the, the trees and the stones and um, the stream, and everything is cared for in some beautiful way, even in the Zen monasteries, you know, in the kitchen, not a grain of rice is, you know, let to go to waste. Everything is cared for in this, in this way of both appreciation and gratitude for what we receive and, and using it well. Um, and what it brings is a sense of beauty, um, the beauty of our connectedness with one another and the earth. I think it's Walt Whitman who says, the earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire. So when we see with this kind of inclusive spirit, we start to see with the eyes of a Buddha or with our own Buddha nature. And sometimes people get a mistaken idea that spiritual practice is a way of of avoiding bad stuff. Okay, I'll meditate and I'll get kind of quiet and high and peaceful and I won't have to deal with those people in the neighborhood that I don't like and with those relatives and those, you know, and I won't have to deal with this and and I can sort of somehow insulate myself from the messiness of humanity and the complexity and difficulty in the world. But to see with the eyes of a Buddha to awaken the wise understanding, this capacity within us is quite the opposite. It is instead the movement of inclusivity to see humanity and all that we share um, as our brothers and sisters, to see with respect. So there's a famous um, story of Ananda, who was the attendant, a monk who was the attendant to the Buddha for 35 years. Um, And he was sent on a mission to a village that had asked for some teachings. And as he went uh, on his way, he passed by a well of another village and saw a young woman named Pakati, who was an untouchable, an outcast in the Hindu caste system. And as she was standing by the well, he asked her for water to drink. And she said, Oh, venerable monk, I am too lowly born to give you water to drink. Because in that culture or that system, um, at the worst, you weren't even supposed to let your shadow fall upon somebody who was in a higher caste. I am too lowly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask anything of me, lest your holiness be contaminated, for I am uh, uh, of the untouchable caste. And Ananda looked at her and said, I did not ask for caste, but for water, please. And the woman's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda the water to drink. And he thanked her and went away, but she followed him at a distance. And hearing that he was a disciple of the Buddha, she went to the Blessed One and said, Help me, and let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells, so that I may see him and minister to him, for I love Ananda. And the Buddha understood the emotions of her heart and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness and respect. Accept then the kindness and respect you have seen him practice toward you and offer it to others. And though they say you are born of low caste, you will be a model for the noble men and women of this 
kingdom. Uh, leave not the path of respect and loving kindness, and you will outshine the royal glory of the kings and queens. If we are to find a way to live in this complex world and to live with our full humanity and with a wisdom, uh, with a wise heart, our practice has to be one of inclusivity and respect. And it has to be so not because you're supposed to be or you know the other way is bad, but because we are connected because we are interdependent, to use the word that Buddhist psychology uses to describe our nature. Thich Nhat Hanh uses this word a lot, the Vietnamese Zen master, when he says, "In this, if you can see with the eyes of a poet, in this one piece of paper is the, the trees that these paper came from, fir trees probably, and the, the logger who cut them down, and the the rain clouds that watered the trees, you know, and the rhizomes and the root systems of the forest where the trees grew, and the paper mill, you know, and the logger's wife who made him lunch the day he cut that tree down, and, <laughs> and, and everything else in the entire world in this piece of paper. If you can see wisely, there's nothing in the universe that's separate from this piece of paper, the sunlight. And the stars and all of the stars, the creation of the universe from the Big Bang. Or if we look at it in a, another way, strawberries are too delicate to be picked by machine. The perfectly ripe ones bruise at even too heavy a human touch. So if we understand, we'll see that every strawberry we ever eat, every piece of fruit, has been picked by callous human hands. Every piece of bread, every glass of wine represents someone's knees, someone's aching back and hips, someone with a bandana on her wrist to wipe away the sweat. We cannot get away from the truth. The only way we can live is to feed one another. So this is the reality or the truth of interdependence. Um, Archbishop Tutu says that in Africa, when you ask someone, how are you, the reply is always in the plural. They say, we are well or we are not well. And that's because someone might be quite fine, he may be feeling good, but his grandmother is sick. So he will say, we are not well, because he includes his family, his community, his village. Again, the reality that we are not separate from one another. And to see with wise understanding is to know this interdependence. And almost all indigenous cultures and people use, <coughs> use the explicit language of family. You know, everybody's brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts. I mean, I think it would be a good thing if we said Auntie Condoleezza Rice, you know, <laughs> and Uncle Arnold Schwarzenegger and Grandfather Dick Cheney, because you know how families are. I don't have to say anything more. They're families, right? 
But it would be wiser and saner to realize that we have this kind of weird family and it's us, it's not them. It is really us. When we come and sit in meditation and we sit here halfway between heaven and earth, take our seat with a certain quality of dignity and open ourselves, often what happens in this very simple act of coming Monday night and spending 35 minutes, 40 minutes sitting, we sit and then the things that we haven't included in our consciousness show themselves. The stress in our body, you're sitting there and your shoulders start to hurt, you know, or your jaw or your back. And it's not like you're carrying something, but all the hours of stress and conflict in our life where we have contracted, where our body has taken on that stress in some way, unconsciously, begin to reveal themselves as we sit. And the body says, remember me? Here it is, you know. And the shoulders start to unknot and the pains that we carry reveal themselves. Or maybe we sit and we're really sleepy and tired. It's like the body saying, hey, remember you haven't had much sleep for a long time. Remember me? You know, and, and sleep is valued in the Buddhist monasteries in some places anyway. In one temple it's called the poor man's nirvana. Right? <laughs> that we need to rest. And so sitting is a kind of reminder of, the, of a kind of intimacy with what's going on within our bodies or our psyches, or maybe we're restless and worried and all kinds of agitation comes um, because of things that we're, we have to do and we're anxious about. Or the unfinished business of the heart comes. You sit quietly and then the, the tears arise because... Um, there was a loss or a grief and we've been so busy that we haven't had time to really listen to it and honor it and re- include it and respect it. Or you just see, you know, the craziness of the mind. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? <coughs> Annie Lamott, who says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. That's... <laughs> kind of why we come on Monday nights, right? I mean, and it will do anything. It does all these kinds of stories and fears and imaginings and reruns. My heavens, it does reruns. It's like, it's the worst of your kind of low-class cable channel that just runs this, this same old, bad kind of B-grade B movies over and over again. But also we carry our sufferings and trauma And the sorrows of the world, all the images and scenes that we see and know from our community and the broader community and the global community. So we sit and somehow we're asked to include our full humanity in this practice of mindfulness and loving kindness. Albert Camus, who writes... We all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes, our ravages. Our task is not to unleash them on the world. It is to face them and transform them in ourselves and therefore in others. And so we do this. We sit with all of this. Um, And sometimes it's difficult because you have to face the loss or the pain or the fear or the anger that you have or the emptiness, the things that keep us busy, you know, the loneliness. So instead of opening the refrigerator, you sit here and 
face the boredom or the loneliness. James Baldwin writes, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so in a lot of ways in the world, people project their hatred on other people, some other group, so that they don't have to face themselves. In a certain way, that's, the, that's a kind of description of what makes suffering or what makes evil, if you want to use that word in the world, is not acknowledging one's own pain and placing it on someone else. And when we sit in meditation, you know, instead of it being, oh, okay, now I'll have this blissful, happy time, I'll smile and my mind will be quiet, and that can come. It's not like that doesn't come too. But especially when we first sit, there comes the layers of our conditioning that we're not often so aware of. Our grasping and contracting and our judgment of ourselves and our reactions or our fear. What is called in Buddhist tradition the, the small sense of self or the body of fear, that kind of contracted identity. But there is another reality and that's the invitation of meditation. The Buddhist texts often begin with the words, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. And there's a kind of dignity and presence that's invited and offered as you take your seat halfway between heaven and earth under your tree of enlightenment. And sometimes people think, well, this enlightenment then is going to be, you know, some really wonderful experience that I can write mom about, you know, write home about or whatever. And sometimes there are incredible visions and mystical openings and it's beautiful. But sometimes it's simpler than that. This is from Tamara Engel, who is a meditation teacher, a friend, who is also currently in the last weeks of um, her life with uh, um, metastatic cancer. And she writes, In my years of practice, I've spent many hours sitting with aversion to unpleasant body sensations. As I sat with my distended belly, what I saw was that every itch I didn't scratch or every tickle in my throat I didn't cough, every throb in my forehead from a headache that I didn't rub, but just sat and opened to, every tear that I let myself weep and stayed present for, served me well. I had developed, cultivated a muscle for bearing witness, for being a mirror to the unpleasant body sensations and the feelings of the heart. And the more I continued in this way, the more peaceful I became. There was no separation that which was pleasant and that which was unpleasant, and my peacefulness itself became seamless. Very simple. Just this deepening capacity to be present for joy and sorrow, for pain and pleasure, for gain and loss, for sweet and sour, Martin Luther King 
says we will meet your suffering with soul force. We cannot obey your unjust laws. We will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience, we will win yours as well. Right understanding is that there is a freedom of heart that is possible for you, for each one of us as human beings, that no one can touch and no one can take from you. And I like to carry when I teach on retreats. Um, I bring it out periodically here on Monday night. This poster of Vedran Smolovich, who was the cellist of Sarajevo. And in Sarajevo, which was the kind of artistic capital of the Balkans, during the war in former Yugoslavia a few years ago, Sarajevo was for three years uh, encircled um, and uh, bombarded. Um, and no one could get in and out except for UN helicopters. Um, there were snipers and mortar fire. And um, every afternoon during that siege of Sarajevo, Bedrin, who had been a cello player for the Sarajevo National Symphony, um, would take out his cello and dress himself up, put on his tux, and take a little folding chair and go out into the main square in the afternoon, in spite of the sniper fires and the mortars, he could easily have been killed, and he would play music so the citizens of Sarajevo would not give up hope. And this is a picture of Vedran playing in the bombed-out National Library of Sarajevo, a special concert. He then went on tour when that war was finished. And he's a kind of visible testimony to that freedom of heart that no one can touch. Nelson Mandela found it in 27 years of prison on Robben Island. And there's a beautiful passage that he wrote, a letter that he wrote to Winnie Mandela, his ex-wife, when she was um, threatened with going to prison. And he wrote and he said, "Um, there's an awful lot that you can learn by spending some time sitting quietly. (laughs) You know... Your humanity and the consequences of your action and your own conscience and your humility, all of these will be revealed to you. It was sort of like a a pep talk for someone going on retreat, basically. (laughs) But it's true for us, as it is true for Nelson Mandela or Sojourner Truth um, or Vedran Smolovich. And we've known it. We always know this from when we were children. This both freedom and inclusivity of the heart. It's what we're born with. One of my favorite teachers in the world is a kindergarten teacher named Peggy. Um, She's just a fabulous teacher. Anyway, um, early on in the beginning of the current Iraq war, which seems like it was a long time ago that it began. It's been happening for a long time. Just as it was getting started, um, her particular kindergarten and preschool is um, on the flyway, if you will, from a big air base. Um, And in preparation for the beginning of that war in the week or two before it, there were a lot of planes taking off 
um, and flying low from that base headed out toward the Middle East. And one morning the children were out on the playground and great big warplanes kind of came over the playground and, and um, planes that were carrying a lot of the equipment for the war. And they were loud and the children came running in and, and said, you know, these planes are flying over, they were really frightened, what is this? And she said, well, you probably heard from your parents in the news that it looks like there's going to be a war in Iraq um, and it's far away, it won't be happening here. She wanted to reassure them. Um, and these are planes for that war. And they said, well, what are on the planes? And she said, well, soldiers and bombs and the things that make for a war. Um, and then the, one of the children said, well, um, are there children over there? And she said, yes. And then this couple of the children said, well, they must not know that. They wouldn't be sending bombs over if they knew there were children there. Um, we have to let them know. How can we let them know? We're going to make a big picture. And they all went back out on the playground and made this huge picture of a child, you know, and then Iraq next to it and say, so that the people, a great big one made out of sticks and paper and everything that you could see it from the air. We have to let them know so that they don't hurt any of the children. They don't know that. Um, we know it. I mean, there's something in us that knows what it means in the deepest sense to include the children who are all our children in our hearts and in our actions. And when we meditate and we stop the busyness of our life for a little bit and get to listen inside, we touch back into the place of wisdom, the place of connection and respect for everybody. And it doesn't take very long. Even a moment where we stop is like a treasure. There you are lost in plans and anxiety and thoughts and fears and all those kind of things that the mind gets lost in and all the kind of stories it tells. And then there's a gap for a moment. And you say, well, I'm actually just sitting here feeling an in-breath or you know, feeling my body sit- seated on the earth or sensing all these people around. And there's a break in the inner dialogue And it's a wonderful treasure. It's as if we step out of that whole story and say, here we are with our whole humanity just here in the present like everybody else on this earth. And this is a moment of mindfulness that returns us to freedom. I mean, and again, it doesn't take long. I like to talk about it this way. You know how when you go and and look in the mirror and you notice that you've aged. You know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) That you look older. Um, But the odd thing is that you don't feel older. You know? That's because the body is getting older. But that's not who you really are. I mean, you're not this food body. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? I hope you think, you know, get that straight. You, You rent it. You get it for a while as an incarnation. And you have to take care of it. 
insure it, you know, all the things when you rent something, right? <laughs> but it's not our identity. We are much more than this body. And that understanding when you look in the mirror, well, I don't feel like I've aged, is true because the mind doesn't age. Consciousness itself is timeless. It enters into this form of body and knows experience, but it's not who you, who you really are. And so a gap in the thoughts, a moment looking in the mirror, a moment where we're really caught up in something and hurt and angry and worried and, you know, um, regretting and all of those things, and then there's a moment, wow, I was really caught in that, wasn't I? And it's like the, a break in the clouds and the sun shines through and you realize, oh, here we are having this human experience on this earth. And space opens up. There's a kind of transparency. There's a capacity to bear witness. Wasn't that her phrase when she talked about this? Cultivated the muscle for bearing witness to my life. Oh, nobly born, says the Buddha, there is a most wonderful way for you, for human beings, to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the path of wisdom and compassion, and realize freedom. And this is the establishment of mindfulness and loving kindness. Mindfulness of the body, and how we move and act, mindfulness of feelings in the heart, mindfulness of the mind and how it operates, mindfulness of the dharma, of the laws that govern our life. And it's amazing. You sit and begin to establish mindfulness, and as you do, the body begins to unwind and heal itself. It does. And the feelings that need to be felt will show themselves, the tears that need to be wept and the joy or love that wants to be acknowledged. And then the mind, with all its reruns, our own quirky personality will show itself. You know, you get the personality channel, right? <laughs> and it's like Ramdas said at one point. He said, um, he said, it's not that I'm really very different after all these years, but I've become a a connoisseur of my neurosis, right? (laughs) It's like, there it is again, okay. And there's a really good example of that. So mindfulness isn't about the experience that we have. You have all these human, every experience you have is a human experience. Mindfulness is about the, the, the presence of mind, the quality that knows experience, the space of awareness, the inner freedom that can take your cello and play in the midst of the war that can center yourself in wisdom or love, no matter what's happening. In a certain way, mindfulness means to pay respects to. Fear comes and you bow to it. Oh, this is fear. Judgment comes and you notice that, oh, this is judgment. It's just the judging mind. Remember that passage from Julia Childs, her cooking instruction. If you're alone in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can always just pick it up. Who's going to know, right? (laughs) And, I mean, it's like meditation. Okay, there's the judging mind. Then here's joy. Some people are afraid to feel their happiness. They're actually afraid. We're so loyal to our suffering 
We are. We're loyal to our suffering. We're, we're afraid to let ourselves feel the measure of beauty and happiness that is also in our world. So mindfulness bows to what's present. Excitement and pleasure and pain and grief, all of those things. And loving kindness, which is really woven together with mindfulness, this great mysterious quality of love, which is kind of like gravity or allurement, to use Brian Swim's word, the poet. It's just something that connects us all the way. Every body has a gravitational field that affects every other. We're also woven together in love. Here's a poem from the Palestinian-American poet Naomi Shihab Nye called Wandering Around the Albuquerque Airport. (laughs) After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of Gate 4A understands Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. But Gate 4A was my own gate, so I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What's her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly. Shudoa shubiduk habibti stani stani min The minute she heard any word she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. I called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her, southwest. (laughs) She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had ten shared friends. (laughs) Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took up two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugary crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Laredo. We were all covered with the same powdered sugar (laughs) and smiling. There is no better cookie. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, non-alcoholic. And the two little girls for our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us all apple juice and lemonade and they were covered with powdered sugar too. And then I noticed my new best friend. Now we were holding hands had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late, of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in. 
the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They all took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. And so when we practice, and meditation is really the, the sitting practice to help you when you're flying around the country, basically, or when other things go wrong in your life. When we practice, we discover this amazing capacity to shift our identity from the small sense of self that gets lost in our stories and our abandonment and our obsession and our guilt and our fear and always seeking approval. Let's just stop for a moment. The universe approves of you. You just need to get this straight. Otherwise, you wouldn't still be here, right? It's pretty obvious. So you might as well just take that in, okay? Staves a lot of trouble on your part. So there we are, seeking approval and trying to get rid of our things and so forth. Oh, nobly born, remember your Buddha nature. There is a graciousness to spirit that is within you. And your task is to bring it forth into the world in a beautiful way. George Washington Carver says, How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong. Because someday in life you will have been all of these. So there's this shift somehow of taking things so seriously, grasping certain things, being frightened of others. Those are all there. But the capacity of the heart, of awareness and loving kindness, is to witness these and to remain true to your deepest, most beautiful nature. This kind of respect, um, I think about a, a woman who used to come on retreats, was one of the founders of the Compassionate Listening Project. And for years they would go, they may still be doing this, to different parts of the world where they felt that people weren't being listened to and listened to the ones that no one would talk to. They went to Libya and sat down and spoke, and sent a delegation and spoke with Muammar Gaddafi when no one would go to Libya and said, well, what is it like for you to be the pariah of North Africa in the eyes of the world? They went to Lebanon and spoke with Hezbollah and various factions, all the different... They went to Nicaragua and spoke to the Contras and the Sandinistas and listened to everybody. Um, And they mostly just wanted to listen and understand respectfully. This group got a interview at one point with the head of NATO in Europe was some time ago when there was still much of the uh, Cold War was going on and all the build-up of nuclear missiles and they sat down with the English general who was the head of NATO at that time and the first thing that they said to him was it must be terribly difficult to feel that you have the security and the safety of hundreds of millions of people on your shoulders. How is that? And they just listened. You could try it in your family. I mean, I don't think you have to go to 
England or Nicaragua or wherever it happens to be. In fact, this quality of listening and respect, which is a part of wise understanding of the gracious heart, will serve you everywhere. It's also important as you do it not to be idealistic. Um, I like this poem from Billy Collins. The way the dog trots out the front door every morning without a hat or an umbrella, without any money, or the keys to her doghouse. <laughs> Never fails to fill the saucer of my heart with milky admiration. Who provides a finer example of life without encumbrance? Thoreau in his curtainless hut with a single plate and single spoon. Gandhi with his staff and his holy diapers. Off she goes into the material world with nothing but her brown coat and her modest blue collar, following her wet nose, the twin portals of her steady breathing, followed by the plume of her tail. If only she did not shove the cat aside every morning and eat all his food, what a model of self-containment she would be. What a paragon of earthly detachment. If only she were not so eager for a rub behind the ears, so acrobatic in her welcomes, if only I were not her fallible God. So it's not about being idealistic. I mean, we all are this way. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? So our respect includes our respect for the kind of difficulties that we face in ourselves, in our family and community and in the world. I remember this woman who came to a retreat and was so frustrated with her husband. They'd both retired and started a new business. And she said, he's so disorganized and inefficient and and so forth. And I said, well, how long have you been married? She said, oh, 33 years. I said, you didn't notice this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, but I really wanted him to be different when we did this business. I just smiled. You know how it is, right? When somebody wants somebody else to be different. It's tough. It's hard enough with yourself, isn't it, huh? So respect is this capacity of the heart, this dignity to hold the 10,000 joys and sorrows of life from your Buddha nature. There are two great forces in this world. Those who are not afraid to kill. And they run you know, a number of countries and control quite a bit of territory. And those who aren't afraid to love. And uh, that's probably the only force that's a match for it. Like Oscar Romero who said, they can kill me, but they cannot kill the voice of justice. If they kill me and he was assassinated, then I will rise again in the Salvadorian people for my life stands for justice. Love and attention are the deepest forms of respect and inclusivity. And there's no one who doesn't long for respect. 
your own body, your feelings, your mind, the elderly, teens, children, the environment, those who are poor, (coughs) those who are rich, those who are angry or sad, your garden, all the animals of the earth. I did a men's retreat a few years ago, and um, there was a fellow there who um, works on weekends and in the evenings for the fun of it as a disc jockey for a radio station in Southern California, a small one. And he has he um, he has a blues show. He loves the blues. I do too. Um, and um, so he gets call in sometimes, or he gets letters or requests. And he said, "I have a big following in prison. I forget which community he was in, but he said there's a lot of guys that listen to me, and I get letters from them." And he said, "One day I got this letter from a a, a fellow, and you know, the next week." Um, I played songs for him. His name was uh, Walter Woods, I think was his name. And he said, this goes out to Mr. Walter Woods, who's an aficionado of the blues, and he wants me to play some of the early masters, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Mississippi John Hurt, Muddy Waters, whatever. So he said I played the tunes he wanted. And then uh, a few weeks later, I got a letter back from Walter Woods, and he thanked me profusely for playing this music and then he said, he said, that was about the first time I can remember in my adult life that I ever heard my name said with respect. Everybody wants it. The environment and your children, you know, and your enemies. So somebody says, okay, but what about when it's really bad? What about when it's really difficult? Story for you. What happened to that story? Here it is. This is from a police officer. And I remember when I was on the radio on Michael Krasny, I got this guy calling in who said he was a San Francisco cop. And he was also a Buddhist. He'd taken bodhisattva vows. And did it seem okay to me that... He was a cop and carried a gun and was taking bodhisattva vows. And I said, did it seem okay? You know, I thought it was the best thing I'd heard in a long time. You know, thanked him for that. Anyway, so this is another policeman. He says, you know, it's really important to stay true to your vision. And the vision I have is the goodness of humanity. Even when it gets to conflict, I arrested a very angry man who singled me out for real animosity. When I had to take him to the paddy wagon, he spit in my face. That was something. And then he went after me with a chair. We handcuffed him, put him in the truck. And on the way, I just had to get past this picture of things. And I affirmed to myself, this guy and I are brothers. When I got to the station, I was moved spontaneously to say, look, if I've done anything to offend you, I apologize. The paddy wagon driver looked at me as if I was totally nuts. (laughs) Next day, I had to take him from where he'd been housed overnight to the criminal court. I picked him up and I thought, well, if you trust this vision, you're not going to have to handcuff him. And I didn't. 
and we got to the spot in the middle of the corridor, which was the place where he'd have jumped me if he had that intention. And he stopped suddenly, and so did I. And then he said, you know, I thought about what you said yesterday, and I want to apologize. And I just felt this deep sense of appreciation. Turned out on his rap sheet, he'd done a lot of time in a couple of really hard prisons and had trouble with the guards there. And I symbolized something for him, of course. And I saw that turn around, saw a kind of healing. So what really happens if you're going to explore whether or not this vision of our true nature has power? People will say you're taking chances. But you're really taking chances without any love. Your love is your protection. So it needs respect. Even Mara needs respect. Respect for greed and hatred and prejudice and racism and fear and... These are not small forces for addiction, competition. We can't just say no. Okay, just say no to this. As Einstein says, all our lauded technology, modern civilization, is like an axe in the hands of a pathological criminal at times. But there's a bigger truth. And my teacher, Mahagosananda, the Cambodian Gandhi, an elder who died recently, I've spoken of in these last in these last talks I've given here. When we were together in the Cambodian refugee camps with people who had suffered incredible loss, the burning of the villages, the shooting and killing of almost all the elders, 57 out of 60,000 monks in Cambodia were killed. All the school teachers were assassinated. <clears throat> all the, almost all the doctors. Um, nobody had a family where a lot of the Members hadn't been killed. Here he was in this refugee camps with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in grief and trauma and loss. And he sat with them. And when he opened his little Buddhist temples in these camps and the people came in droves, he would begin just by looking at them, his own family, 17 members of his family were killed, looking at them with tremendous love and compassion and chant the verses from the Buddha. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he would chant it over and over again. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And it was as if he looked out and saw the incredible suffering of their lives. And the tragedies and losses that were almost incalculable. And bowed to them and said, yes. And here is a truth that's even bigger than your sorrow. Hatred still never ceases by hatred. But by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. So when we practice meditation and cultivate this capacity of presence, bearing witness, mindfulness, and loving kindness in ourselves so that we can offer respect to the 10,000 joys and sorrows of our humanity and of this world, um, it gives us a connection uh, it gives us a illumination 
to bring to everything else. Because when people ask for a little attention, it's a great thing. When our body or our heart asks for attention or respect, our friends, our enemies, in some way the whole of the path of awakening, which isn't really from here to there, but from there to here, right? The whole path of awakening of generosity and virtue and compassion and understanding and liberation, all of it is of deepening respect for the way things are and meeting this world with a heart that is spacious and free and kind. Alice Walker, who says, Peace will come wherever it is sincerely invited. Love will overflow every sanctuary given to it. Truth will grow where it is fertilized with truth. Faith will be its own reward. Thomas Merton writes, he says, Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their heart where neither sin nor knowledge nor desire can touch, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, There would be no more need for war or cruelty or greed. I think the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. When we practice, it's as if we allow ourselves to remember our own secret beauty and the goodness in every living being. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.